As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We continue to look at this letter that we began uh, a few weeks ago. We are still here uh, in this longest sentence of the Bible, running from verse 3 uh, down through verse 14. And not only is this the longest uh, one sentence in the Bible, uh, Paul has packed the Bible into this one sentence. Uh, and there are so many different uh, entry points and vantage points um, that um, part of me wants to kind of move in big chunks because I know certain people like that. Uh, but I also kind of also want to just take up residence <laughs> and just soak, soak this in. Um, so uh, from week to week, we're making decisions, uh, and uh, so I can't promise you that we'll go fast or slow. Um, we'll just uh, keep digging and digging uh, and enjoying uh, what, what God has for us here as he is unfolding this amazing reality of what it means for us to be in Christ. The focus today is going to be on verses 7 through 9, which we just used as our assurance of pardon. Um, we're not even going to try to cover all of 9, uh, but we're going we're gonna to dig into a couple of the really big ideas that are there. Uh, but to once again set this whole sentence together, so we're holding all of this together, uh, we're going to read uh, from uh, verse um, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning. We have already received so much from you as, as you have met with us here. 
as you have revealed yourself to us here afresh, as you have forgiven us here afresh, and as you are nurturing us to trust you more and more with our lives and to devote more and more of ourselves to you and to you alone. Use this, your living word, to speak to us today, to further encourage and exhort us, not only in who we are as your people, but what it means for us to live as that people in the privilege of serving you and in the privilege of being used by you as those who have a shared life, love, and mission in Jesus Christ. So bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is An Extravagant Freedom and Forgiveness in Christ. I have seized on this word. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. But this word extravagance just has been running through uh, my heart uh, for, for the past months as I have been reflecting and, and once again preparing for us to, to work through this letter. A word extravagant that often brings with it negative connotations, right? If something is described as extravagant, it's often described that way um, as a way to express, oh, well, it just, it, it's gone too far. Oh, it, it's, 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 it's gone overboard, right? If something is this extravagant, this extravagant ball, it's almost like you're saying that they went overboard with, with how luxurious it was and, 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 and how sparkly things were and, and how good the food was. And, and it's over the top is often the way that we use that word and we typically use it as a way of describing something negatively. But is there any better word that you can think of to describe that you in Christ have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has been extravagant with us. He has given us to the fullness of Jesus Christ everything. Every righteousness, every blessing that is capable to be had. Our God, beloved, is not a stingy, miserly God. And his heart, as, as we said last week, has been set upon us as his people before the foundations of the world. Not because we are worthy to have his, head, his heart set upon us, but the fact that he has set his heart upon us is what makes us privileged to be his people. And he has set that heart upon us so that we, through Christ, might embrace God himself 
that we might experience the new life that we have with God himself so, so that we might embody that life of God to ourselves, to one another, back to God in worship. And that we might have that privilege of expressing and extending the life of Christ out into this world as we, as his ambassadors, in whom he lives, take him into every single activity in which we engage ourselves. This is an amazing privilege and, and, and position to be the children of God who are his children because of the righteousness of one son given to all his sons and daughters. I'm going to put it to you another way. There is not one thing that God has withheld from you as his son or as his daughter. This is why Paul is gushing as he writes to this church who lives in Vanity Fair, who lives in, in, in a port city that was wealthy and highly educated and was dedicated uh, to the goddess Diana, who, who lived within a culture that was saturated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as God had, had exhibited his power in Christ to powerfully take them out of that and to make them his, he is now giving them what they need to live as the people of God in Vanity Fair. And beloved, that's where you and I live. And this is what you and I need. As those who have been powerfully taken out of the kingdom of darkness and been brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. God has not withheld one single thing. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, the gospel. For many of us who did not grow up in reformed settings, when we think of the gospel, it is so tempting to think, oh, you mean that simple, little, you know, basic message about Jesus that we tell our children? Yes, that. That which has no bounds. Do you realize it is impossible to find the bottom of the depths of how awesome the gospel of Jesus Christ is. We don't learn theology in order to get beyond the gospel. We learn theology so that we start plumbing the depths and the heights of the extravagance of who God is, what he has done for us. That's why we learn theology, is so that our hearts can be captured by the wonder of God.
This is what your faith is to look up to. Not a stingy, miserly God who sits up there waiting for you to mess up so that he can smack your hand. Not a stingy, miserly God who is up there and as soon as you start to have fun, does something to make sure that that comes to an end. Not a stingy, miserly God who is up there in the strictness of, of who he is, waiting for you uh, to, to start to, to enjoy something so that he can remind you of your duty. That's not who he is, and that's not what he's doing. He is extravagant with us. And he does so as an expression of his heart's desire for you. The gospel is the power. The gospel is the power that we are dependent on, not only for the embracing of the initial embracing of Jesus, but for the ongoing daily discipleship of embracing him over and over and over and over, and to embrace him in order to enjoy him, to experience God, not just to learn his truth. you got to learn the truth, but you learn the truth in order to experience who he is and to enjoy what it means to be his. And so it is the gospel that brings us to new life. It is the gospel that trains us and disciples us to mature us to the full stature of Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. It's not enough to merely get started. It is absolutely essential for us to grow. And it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that establishes the conditions in which we live and mature in the Christian life and bear witness to his ongoing aliveness. I like that word. Because it's a word that I don't typically use. I don't even know if it's a real word. If it's not, don't tell me. Don't wreck things. We, in the, in the Christian faith, can say resurrection over and over and over. We can say the phrase, oh, and Jesus was raised from the dead. And we can say it over and over and over. And one of the things and the temptations that can happen when you say something over and over and over, familiarity breeds... Well, not contempt in this situation. But it starts to tempt you to become comfortable. Oh, yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead. That is mind-blowing. And Jesus was raised to the, from the dead never to die again. He was raised to live forever. He was raised to aliveness. And so use that word so that it strikes you once again in the, in, in the description of what you're really 
embracing when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day. You are embracing his aliveness. And his aliveness is the condition in which your aliveness now exists. And you never go beyond that. You go deeper and you go higher. There is something new under the sun. The resurrection of Christ. And his resurrection is your resurrection. You are alive in Christ. Whereas before you were dead in your sin. You're alive to the new birth. You're alive to God's coming to you. You're alive to his existence, holiness, will, kingdom, power, glory. And we could keep going. You're alive to that now. And what you are alive to, beloved, is absolutely extravagant and limitless in its glory, in its riches. So stop. Stop shortchanging what God has done for you. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that during the week when I find myself challenged by my flesh or I find myself challenged by the world or I find myself challenged by the devil or I find myself just challenged with boredom where I start to think those thoughts of, you know, there's just, if, if I just had this or if I just didn't have to deal with that, you know, I, I keep wrestling with that sin, you know, because you know, I don't really want to say it out loud, but God's just not freeing me from it. Now, raise your hand if you've never thought that. Here's what I want to convince you of today. What it means to be in Christ, here in verses 7 and 8 in particular, is that you are free. And that you are forgiven. First of all, what Paul tells us here is that you are free in Christ. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. What Paul is doing here is he is taking the old covenant uh, uh, the old the old covenant imagery of the exodus as that imagery was then played out in the sacrificial system uh, in Israel as all of that was directing us to what God would ultimately do in Christ what it means to be redeemed in Christ, what it, what it means to, be, to, to have redemption is that God has bought us out from slavery. We were slaves. And we were stuck in a system that we could not get free from unless someone, came and did something for us and paid what was needed to be paid to purchase us. In Exodus, 
God sends his servant who, who does these wonders, these miracles as a way of giving expression to the power of God and the purposes that he had that he was not going to leave his people as slaves. And what did he do? Through the shedding of sacrificial blood, he protected his people from himself. God protected us from himself. So that when the sacrificial lamb, the blood was shed and they painted it on the door frame and as they ate that first Passover meal, what they were doing was they were receiving from God what they needed to be protected from God. And as that spirit came and brought death to the firstborn sons throughout the land of Egypt, those who had received God's provision were protected But the real protection was not simply in that they didn't lose their firstborn. The protection was that the firstborn perished throughout of Egypt and then God took his people out of Egypt. These are mine, God said to Pharaoh through Moses. These are mine and I am no longer going to have them here. I'm going to bring them to myself on Mount Sinai in order that they can come before me and worship. And so he did. And he brought them safely through every single thing that was standing in their way, including the waters of the Red Sea, where he parted them. And he drew them safely through those waters and were those waters then that were the waters of salvation crashed upon God's enemies and became the waters of judgment and destruction. And the people of God were brought by God to God as they came to the foot of his holy mountain and heard from God directly, I am the Lord your God. I just bought you. I just redeemed you. I just freed you from bondage in Egypt. Beloved, what God has done for us through the shedding of the blood of the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ himself is he has permanently, once and forever, freed you from sin. What is it that ultimately was holding the people of God in slavery? What is it that was ultimately holding every single son and daughter of Adam and Eve in slavery? It was sin. And what God has done in Christ, this redemption, what he has done is he has freed us from sin. He has freed us from sin's penalty. So that in Christ, you no longer have to pay the debt that you owe to God for your sin. Because there is no debt to pay. It's been paid. In fullness. Completely. You in Christ have not been brought to a position of neutrality 
where you can fall back into a negative account with God through your ongoing sin. In Christ, you have been brought to the fullness of your account to the point that you can never be anything but fully paid up with God in Christ. Hear that. You're going to sin today. You're going to sin with how long I go in this sermon. No, I'm just joking. You might, I don't know. You're going to sin. And you're going to be tempted to think, oh, my sin just moved me back. My sin just took something away. My, my sin just, just challenged or, or threatened my standing with God. Beloved, it can't. It can't. You are free from the penalty. You are free from the cost. And you are not free from the penalty and the cost of your sin because God has decided to just wipe it off the books. If God decided to do it by just wiping it off the books, guess what God could also decide to do? He could decide to put it back on the books. If he was wiping it away simply because of making the decision to wipe it away. But that's not what he's done. He has taken it off the books because it has been paid in full. And there is no longer anything that is owed. There is no longer anything that can be owed because what God has given to you in the account that you have is the fullness of the righteousness of his son. Can Jesus Christ move backwards in his righteousness? Can Jesus Christ be anything other than the fullness of the righteousness of God? No. In his aliveness, he has been made alive to the fullness of the righteousness of his Father, to which he now grants us a share. Beloved, your account is fully paid up, and it can never be anything other than fully paid up. You don't believe that, though. I don't believe that. But you're free from the penalty. You are free from the power. And this is the one that you really, this is the one that I really don't get. You are free from the power of sin and death. And I know what you're thinking right now. Well, not if you knew what was going on in my heart. <laughs> if you really knew what was going on, and I do know what's going on, because it's going on in mine. You knew what was there, and I do. And so does Jesus. He knows what's there. Even the stuff that you're trying to hide, the stuff that you won't admit even to yourself, he knows it all. And he knows it because he paid for it. When you're discovering that sin in your, in your heart, all you're discovering are the specifics of what Christ has already completely taken care of. And as a result, sin and death no longer have a power over you. You are no longer, to put it another way, just like you're no longer a slave to Egypt, you are no longer a slave to sin, a slave to death. In the aliveness of what you share in through the aliveness of Jesus Christ, you are alive 
to the freedom of Jesus Christ. Can Jesus ever be recaptured? Can he ever be taken into slavery? Can Jesus ever be taken into bondage? No. And guess who also cannot? Every single person who is in Christ. Beloved, you are free from the penalty. You are free from the power of sin. And if you are not cultivating this within your heart, you will continue as you wrestle with sin, you'll also continue to wrestle with, well, what does this mean for my standing? Or what does this mean for my discipleship? Or what does this mean for my faithfulness? Is there something so wrong with me that I can't really deal with this sin in my life? Has anyone ever not thought that? Why do I keep doing this one sin? I sin, I confess it, I feel horrible about it, but I confess it and I receive forgiveness and then within 10 seconds I do it again. And then I do it again and I do it again. And what are you tempted to think? There is obviously something wrong with me. There is obviously something missing. That's what you think. Beloved, it's not true. You think it, but it's not true. It is in the moments as we are reflecting upon who we are in Jesus Christ that we want to cultivate the specifics of what it means. We want to cultivate the extravagance. An extravagant freedom is a freedom that is so far beyond that there is nothing that could ever taint it ever. But here's what does happen when you engage in that sin over and over and over. When you get that temptation to think there's something wrong with you or there's something lacking, right? There is something wrong. What's wrong is that you are not fully embracing what is already yours. What is wrong is that you are voluntarily placing yourself into the servanthood of that sin when you don't have to. That's what's going on. You are voluntarily submitting to something that you in Christ are already victorious over. But what we cultivate in our lives when we are not living according to the extravagance of the faith uh, that God has revealed to us in Christ, what you are doing is you are starving yourself. You are shortchanging yourself. You are narrowing the perspective and the imagination of your faith to the point that you start tricking yourself into thinking that there is something stronger than Christ. I'm going to put it in another way. You trick yourself into thinking that there's something stronger than you in Christ. Beloved, Paul is gushing here because he, what he wants you to embrace is that there is nothing stronger than you 
in Christ. Because in Christ, you have redemption. You are free. You are free. You are forgiven. We've hit on that. But what is really key here, beloved, is the cultivation that the freedom and the forgiveness are extravagant. Notice that this freedom and this forgiveness are according to the riches of God's grace. He doesn't just simply say according to God's grace. Would that be awesome in and of itself? Yes! Do you know what grace is? I grew up hearing grace is unmerited favor. Now, that's a lovely description, and it is 90% accurate. The better way to say it is that grace is demerited favor. Grace, if it's unmerited, means, hey, someone has decided to give this thing to you. Demerited is that is grace is saying someone has decided to give you the very opposite of what you have earned. We have earned in, Christ, in, in Adam, we have earned death. For the wages of sin is death. But in Christ, we have been granted the riches of God's demerited favor. We earned one thing. He gives us the opposite of what we've earned. Demerited faith, uh, uh, favor is in and of itself awesome. But what does Paul say here? It's according to the riches of God's demerited favor. Is that how you cultivate grace in your life? And I don't just mean when things are going well and you've had a nice quiet time and you feel like, oh, God really spoke to me in my, in, in my verse this morning and I'm feeling pretty good. I'm not talking about in those times. And I'm not talking about in those times where, you know, you've been wrestling with a sin issue and then you have a breakthrough where you really say no to it and you experience the joy that comes from it. I'm not talking about in those times. Now, you should be cultivating the riches of God's grace in those times. But I'm talking about in those times where you wake up and you are just aware that yesterday was just an awful day. I contradicted my identity in Christ over and over and over. And it would be generous to describe my devotion to God as mixed, as it was mostly 90% to the world and 10% to him. You have those days. I have those days. And are you cultivating the riches of God's grace in those times? Because guess what? It is no less true then than when you feel like you've had a good day. The riches of God's grace that he, what? lavished upon us. Is that the adjective that you use to think of God's interactions with you? That God has lavished his 
unmerited favor upon me. That he has given me to the uttermost the fullness of the riches of his demerited favor that have been merited for me by his son. Would God ever take back from Jesus what Jesus earned through his faithfulness? No. And guess who that faithfulness also belongs to? You. Are you cultivating grace in your life? Are you cultivating the riches of grace? Are you cultivating the lavishness of grace? Or is your following of Jesus Christ made up with a lot of, oh God, I'm just not worthy of your grace. Oh God, I'm just not worthy. I'm just not worthy. Guess what? You're not. Okay? Let's get that out of the way. You're not worthy. But why do you have it? Because he set his heart upon you to relate to you that way before the foundations of the world. And it is dependent upon his decision. It is dependent upon the faithfulness of his son. And it has nothing to do with whether you are worthy or not worthy of it. And so if you're going to continue to say that kind of stuff to yourself, I'm not worthy, fine. But if you don't follow it up with, I'm not worthy, but, and then you start going overboard with your descriptions of the riches and lavishness and extravagance of God's grace in your life, then you are not actually following Jesus as Jesus tells you to follow him. And I know that that doesn't seem right. It seems like if I really want to prove to God that I'm thankful for his grace, then I'll, I'll just, I'll really make sure he knows that I know, oh, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. For the parents in here who have given your child a gift, right? Especially like one of those big gifts. My kids don't know about those, but most of you know at Christmas, you know, you, the, the, the big gift, right, for the, the bicycle. You give the bicycle. Now, what do you want to hear and see in your child in response to the bicycle? Now, come on, don't play around. What do you want to see? I know what I want to see. I want to see them kowtow to me and tell me over and over and over, oh, I'm not worthy of this bicycle. And I don't want them to ride that bike without first coming to me and say, look, I, I just want you to know before I go out here, I know I'm not worthy of this bicycle. In fact, I'm going to go out and ride it and feel kind of bad about it. Will that prove to you that I'm thankful? Right? Now think about that. How ludicrous is that? But who in here doesn't live that way with God? I'm going to prove to God that I know that, that, that I'm thankful by not actually enjoying the gift, but by just constantly telling him I'm not worthy of it. Beloved, you're not. You're not worthy of it. Guess who knows that better than you do? God. 
He knew that you were not worthy of it. He knew that you could never be worthy of it. So what he has done in Christ is qualified you for it. Paul in Colossians 1 says the exact same thing that he's talking about here, but the words he uses is that, that, you, have been, uh, that you have been bought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, and you have been qualified in Christ for that. You are not worthy in and of yourself, but in Christ, guess what? God considers you worthy. Beloved, don't shortchange your faith and the power of the gospel in your life by trying to make less of the gospel, and more of yourself, even if it's in terms of making more of yourself through false humility. Instead, in the humility of Christ, raise your hands and receive and praise and give thanks and express worship for the fullness of what is yours in Christ and who God counts you to be in Christ. And beloved, when you do that, when you are alive to the riches that have been lavished upon you in the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that will be the power to deal with that sin, to deal with that besetting sin, to deal with that sin that's not yours, but that sin you're receiving from someone else over and over and over, where their sin becomes something that you're tempted to diminish yourself over. Where the ongoing sin in the world, where we get tempted to see it and go, you know, can anything, can anything happen? Yeah. The fullness of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places can be given to you. And the ongoing wickedness and sinfulness in this world, which is so difficult to watch and to see and to see people suffering under it. Guess what? Even that has not changed the riches of the depths and heights of the fullness of what is yours in Jesus Christ. And so don't be tempted to define yourself by the finite things going on. Don't be tempted to define yourself by the sin that you've already been freed from and that you've already been forgiven of. Don't don't define yourself that way. Instead, define yourself. And this is going to be counterintuitive to you. Define yourself in terms of the riches of the lavishment, of the extravagance of your heavenly Father. And bask in it. And let that define you so that you will not voluntarily submit yourself to sin again. So that you will embody the life of Christ And the righteousness imputed to you becomes a righteousness reflected in and through you. One last thing. 
and this is going to be quick. If you don't do this for yourself, beloved, you will not do it for one another. And when your spouse or your child, your coworker, your friend, your neighbor, when you have one of those difficult relationships where someone does keep sinning against you, someone in Christ, a Christian brother or sister, keeps sinning against you and sinning against you and sinning against you, guess what you will think about them? You will not see them as free and forgiven in Christ. And guess who you will start thinking they owe something to? You. And you, emotionally, psychologically, in so many different ways, can try to make someone your servant and make them work their way out of the sin that they may be sinning against you. Let the riches and lavishness of the extravagance of God's grace for you also apply to your brother and sister in Christ so that you can learn to live with a fellow believer who still sins, where both of you are interacting through the lavishness and extravagance of freedom and forgiveness where you don't voluntarily submit yourself to something and where you don't attempt to enslave someone else to yourself. That is how free, that is forgiveness. Beloved, that is just a part of what it means for you to be in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, so much around us so much in us, in our, our, our interactions in our own hearts, our interactions with ongoing sin, our interactions with the world, the flesh, the devil, with one another. So much, Lord, is attempting to convince us of something other than the truth. And so, Lord, help us not to build up our enemies, but instead to build up who we are in Christ. And to see our enemies, whether it's sin or the flesh, the world or the devil, to see those in their proper light from the heavenly perspective which Paul has been giving to us from the beginning. That those things are small, they are finite, and they are defeated. And that in Christ, having received all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, we are infinite. We now share in the eternal. We now possess to the fullness the riches of your grace in Christ. Lord, help us to make much of who we are in Christ so that the strength and the power that belongs to us in Christ will be something that we use in order to live in the hope of of Christ in the midst of our difficulties and our struggles so that we will indeed bear witness to the superiority of the manifold perfections of your being which you have given us freely in Christ. Lord bless us and send us out we pray in Jesus name.
Amen.